says in chapter 24, verse 27, but after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me to accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove and father we just humbly ask as we continue now in our worship that you'd give us just the help of your holy spirit to understand the word of god and to hear what you by your spirit are trying to say to us through this portion of your holy scripture lord may every intent behind why you inspired it and recorded it originally may it find its proper place speaking to us in this day and hour this morning bless your word and we ask you to speak to us by your spirit together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, who would have ever thought that sometimes working through challenging issues or sometimes even having to work through problems with people could actually bring about God's purposes for our lives? And yet the reality is sometimes that is part of God's pathway to direct us to where he ultimately may want us to be or get in life. We learn that in today's chapter, certainly the Lord gave Paul a promise. If you remember, we saw it a few chapters ago that he was destined ultimately to bear witness of Jesus Christ in the capital city of the Roman Empire, which was Rome. Yet it is through the circumstantial process uh, to get him there of the pathway of difficulty that Paul ultimately ends up arriving in Rome. In other words, the way that Paul got from point A to point B where the Lord wanted him to be was through the pathway of difficulty, through hardships personally and difficult experiences with people. See, we have to always remember, God is ruling over all. And because God is ruling over all, that means this. Difficulties may come, but difficulty does not hinder God. Difficulty, in fact, ultimately serves God's divine purposes in the end. Because God is ruling and God will overrule and he can even use difficulty to accomplish what he wants in the end. The backdrop, remember, after having been physically attacked and abused in Jerusalem, falsely accused multiple times of things he did not do, Paul was then transported as a prisoner to the headquarters of the Roman province of Judea, which was Caesarea, where he might there appear, if you would, before the higher courts of the Roman Empire, before the governor of the area of Judea. 
hoping to sort out what was all this hatred and animosity towards this man, Paul, that the people attacked there in Jerusalem. Chapter 24, as we looked at it together last time, remember, Paul has just stood trial before Felix the governor, who brought Paul out, and those who hated Paul and who despised him had come from Jerusalem to present their accusations and their charges. Remember, they hired this high-powered attorney, Tertullus, this great order to come and to professionally present their case of indictment and accusations against Paul. The problem was, though this man spoke very eloquently, he had no factual basis to any of his evidence. And as Paul simply, humbly spoke on his own behalf to give his own defense, he proved that there was no factual basis, no evidence to any of the accusations they were making against him. It was all false accusations because of their great hatred towards Paul. And Paul pointed out logically how there was no proof to anything they were accusing him of, that he had broken no civil laws, that he had violated nothing of Roman law or even of Jewish law. And it was just a bunch of angry individuals, really, who just hated Paul personally and despised what he stood for and he represented and they wanted to bring about his ruin. Well, Felix, the governor presiding over this whole hearing, recognized this wasn't a civil issue, but it was more of a religious issue and a personal issue of offense that they had towards Paul. And instead of just setting Paul free and allowing him to have his liberty once again, instead Felix, who was a rather corrupt individual, decided to postpone the decision to keep Paul in protective custody, if you would, as a prisoner, hoping, the Bible told us, that someone might give him bribe money to set Paul free. So for the next two years, Paul remains in custody and is not set free. Come to chapter 44, verse 27, the last verse of that chapter, and it tells us there that after two years then, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. He took over his position as governor. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, that is upon his departure, he left Paul bound as a prisoner. So notice, over a two-year period, Paul is kept under custody as a prisoner of the state and while he was there during that time felix who had been the governor for about seven years total continued to become more corrupt personally he continued to conduct himself in corrupt manners as a political leader and ultimately he ends up historically being removed from office because he continued to create constant instability through bad decisions there in the area of Judea that he was governing over, he's ultimately recalled by the emperor back to Rome to give account for his poor rulership and the instability that he was causing in the area of Judea. He's then replaced, as verse, 24 tell, or verse 27 tells us, by a man named Portius Festus. And Festus, we know, was an older man who supposedly had much more experience as a ruler, and he was sent by Rome to the area of Judea to basically, under Rome's hope, restore stability to this very volatile region among the Jewish people in the southern part of Israel. But upon Festus departing from his position, knowing he's in trouble being called back to Rome, hoping to maybe garner some favor if it would be a future benefit, wanting to gain, it says, verse 27, some favor with the Jewish people, 
He left Paul bound as a prisoner of the state instead of just releasing him. Now, that means that Festus, as he inherits the territory to rule where Felix once was, Festus now inherits another problematic problem on top of many others that are caused by the bad decisions of the prior administration, right? Isn't that what everybody who comes into power complains about? I inherited this mess from the last guy. Well, that's exactly what's happening here really with uh, Festus as he now comes to the position he ends up inheriting the difficult problems of another person's foolish actions. And Felix was a horrible ruler uh, and he caused all types of issues. But, you know, sometimes in life, uh, whether you're a governor or a political leader, honestly, I realize that sometimes part of life is inheriting the problematic situations that other people cause for you. And sometimes this just ends up being a part of personal experience for all of us. We step into maybe having to take over some situation that is a mess that was caused by somebody else's bad decisions. That's part of being a parent. If you have children, you notice that sometimes, right? You end up inheriting their bad decisions, and sometimes you're sorting things out uh, that your children have created in a particular situation. That happens in job situations. Sometimes maybe you end up inheriting a messy situation or the difficulties or the problems that are caused by maybe, you know, a a situation that a company got themselves into or that people made that were poor choices or whatever. And sometimes, though we don't create the problems, though we don't cause the mess, we end up finding ourselves in a place where we step in and we kind of inherit the mess And now it becomes our responsibility to kind of have to work through that difficult situation and bring resolution. You know, perhaps you are very familiar. Maybe this describes something you've gone through or recently dealing with. Let me just encourage you. Sometimes that's part of our experience. And when that happens, you just need to ask God for the grace to work through that situation and to do the best you can to bring help and resolution. And God's the best one to help you anyway. I'll tell you why. Because think what God did when the atom bomb, quote unquote, happened, right? And Adam bombed out. What did God get? A big mess on the globe with a whole bunch of people that are sinful in a fallen world. And what is God doing? God inherited the mess that Adam delivered to him through his poor decisions. And God's been the one throughout all of human history trying to work through and bring resolution and reconcile people back to himself. Now, as for Paul, I imagine also when this happens, he gets left as a prisoner. I'm sure that had to be very disheartening for Paul as well. I mean, think about this. Here he is now, and for two years, he's sitting there in prison, though he should not be. And now, at this point, uh, Felix is leaving his position, and he could set Paul free, but he doesn't. And now Paul, if you would, kind of gets, if you could say, overlooked and left in prison as the next guy assumes the role. And I imagine Paul, he's just like you and I, he's got to, I'm sure, probably to some degree be thinking, Lord, are you kidding me? Again, I got overlooked. I mean, all I've been doing is trying to do what's right. All I've been doing is trying to represent you well and speak your word. And again, I get overlooked and now I'm stuck here in this prison. But yet, take in mind, this is because the Lord still wants Paul to be stuck exactly where Paul's stuck. This is by divine design. Being overlooked 
being stuck in the situation he wished he wasn't and not being able to move on or be set free from it was actually because there were still a few more people that God wanted Paul to meet, that God wanted Paul to minister to, and God wanted Paul to speak to. And because of that, God, if you would, by his sovereignty, allowed Paul to be stuck in that same place just a little while longer because there was a little more ministry that God wanted to do through his life to help people. And, you know, I think we need to remember sometimes that's our experience. If the Lord allows you to perhaps be overlooked or left or stuck in a situation that really you wish maybe you didn't have to be stuck in, maybe you should step back and just consider the bigger picture is maybe because there's a divine purpose behind that. Maybe there's another person or persons that God still wants you to have an impact on, and that's why he's left you where you are. Well, chapter 25 then begins telling us as Festus takes over the position, it says, when Festus came to the province of Judea, that would be, after three days, he then went up from Caesarea, which was where the headquarter of the governor of Judea was, and it says he went up to the city of Jerusalem. So take notice, as uh, Festus comes to power now to assume his new position as procurator of Judea, it tells us, as he comes to the turbulent province area, that he very quickly gets right to work. Because it says there in our text, he only spends three days at the area of Caesarea, which was where the headquarters was. That was where the governor's palace, Herod's Praetorium was. He just kind of gets there, unpacks his bags, puts out his toothbrush, gets himself settled. And within three days, he right away heads, it says, to the city of Jerusalem. But again, why was that important? Because that was the epicenter of all the Jews in the area of Judea. That was where their source of life stemmed from, where the temple was, where the religious leaders were, the Sanhedrin were. And he wants to go to the source of this area of unrest to meet with the people there, no doubt to connect with the movers and the shakers of the people of the province of Judea, to get them to recognize him to establish himself as their new ruler, to make connections, and probably wisely hoping to garner some of their respect, that he came right away to their region that mattered to them as he showed up as their new ruler. Now, look at verse 2 and 3. As he shows up and meets with the religious leaders, again, they were the movers and shakers in the area of Jerusalem, the high, if you would, profile people of the province of Judea. Look what happens. It says, verse 2, Then the high priest... And the chief men of the Jews informed, it says, Festus against Paul. And they petitioned him, asked for a favor right away, that he would summon Paul to Jerusalem, verse 3, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So take note here, right away, what is the first default in the thoughts and the concerns of the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. It is the deep issue that they had with Paul as an individual. These individuals clearly lived fixated, pretty obvious, and consumed with what they feel Paul has done wrong to them. And here we are years later, whenever they can, they're still rehashing the same old issues. What is the first favor they ask of their new governor in the region? The first thing they ask is they petition 
asking a favor that he would summon Paul as a prisoner back to Jerusalem. And reason, again, notice, they're kind of saying, look, bring him back to Jerusalem so we can reopen his trial here where it began. But what was their agenda at the end of verse 3? They were going to lay in ambush along the road so that they could assassinate Paul while he's in transit there to Jerusalem. They again have this death plot. And can I remind you again, here's this death plot that they had from over two years ago. They want to assassinate and kill Paul still. Now, again, I look at passages like this in the Bible and to me, I go, wait a minute. These are religious leaders. These are people who, you know, faithfully, they're there at the temple. They're standing up and sitting down when they're supposed to, doing all the religious rituals and routines. Hey, we worship God and we serve God. But yes, we also kill and hurt people. Hello? There's a little spiritual inconsistency in that. You worship God. You go through the motions of a religious and a spiritual life, but yet you harm people? You kill people? There's a little inconsistency there between what you say you believe and your spiritual practices. And not to mention, if you remember, they say we're going to lay an ambush along the road to kill him. That was the same mindset, remember, from a few chapters ago that they were holding over two years ago. It said 40 men had come together and collaborated that they were taking an oath not to eat anything or drink anything until they had killed Paul the apostle and they had asked the religious leaders to bring him in for a second hearing and they were going to wait in ambush to do the exact same thing to murder or assassinate Paul while he was in transit as a prisoner. So again, here we are now. It's been over two years after multiple efforts have been made to work through their issues, to talk through things. Two years have passed and these individuals are still angry. They're still bitter. They're still resentful. They still have not let go of the issue. They're still nursing it. And holding on to it, they did not work through it and let it go. They're still nursing the same grudge and the same offense from years ago. And oh, let me say, how familiar is that pattern with humanity? How familiar is that pattern? Something happens, right? Some misunderstanding. That's all it was in Paul's situation. It was a flat-out misunderstanding. Some offense, something that you offended me, you angered me, you hurt me, you did something, whether it legitimately happened or didn't, some hurt or anger takes place. And then maybe there are some efforts, right? Like with Paul and these individuals, try and work through it, talk through it, discuss it or whatever. Yet rather than just recognize, okay, some mistakes happened, let's move on. Let's let it go and move on. Some things happen instead years later. Years later, people are still resentful. They're still angry. They're still holding on to bitterness and nurturing, nursing a grudge and, and still holding animosity and resentment over things that happened years ago. Look, let me say to you in love, since you were in church this morning, if in any way that is the case with you and you are still replaying the same episode again and again and again of something that happened, can I exhort you? You need to change the channel. 
the remote's in your hands. You need to change the channel and move on and biblically forgive and let it go. Things happen. Welcome to reality on earth. And I am not diminishing, listen, in any way, folks, the value of hurtful things, legitimate hurtful things that happen. I have a wife that was sexually abused as a child. My wife does not live with a grudge her whole life long. That's pretty grievous, right? So I'm not saying this lightly to say, well, you knew what happened to me. I know people who grievous things have happened to and they've moved on. They've biblically worked through it and by the power of the Holy Spirit, properly forgiven and let it go. Move on. Don't nurse it for two, three, five, seven, twenty years. I mean, as Christian, I mean, these were unbelievers, so I'll give them a little bit of allowance there. As believers, it should not be the case with us. When we choose to not forgive and be resentful and bitter and not move on, we're basically choosing to disobey God because God tells us to do that and has given us the power to do that. But here, these religious leaders, two years later, they still want to murder Paul. Well, as they asked for that request, verse 4 says, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, verse 5, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. So notice, Festus sensed, it seems, or unless they directly told him they were going to be waiting in ambush, one way or the other, he either sensed this wasn't healthy or they told him. He sensed this is not a wise thing to consent to what they're asking. He says, look, I am not moving Paul from Caesarea in my custody back here to Jerusalem just because you're asking me to do that. So he denies giving in to their idea. He wanted to keep Paul in custody and he offers them the opportunity to come have a fair trial. He says, look, if you want to bring accusations against this man, whoever is among authority in you, he says, let's go back to the area of Caesarea. And he says, come down with me and you can accuse this man, verse 5, and we'll see if there's any genuine accusations that stick and fault in his life. Again, this is wisdom of not giving in to their manipulation as healthy individuals and kind of keeping control over the situation shows you already a little more wisdom in the way that Festus handled his affairs. And for us, by way of application, take notice of this. When you sense that you're dealing with an individual or individuals that just don't seem like healthy individuals, can I encourage you like Festus here? Beware of being manipulated. If you sense somebody's an unhealthy individual, just because they're pressuring you to do something, don't give them control in the situation. It's not wise to give unhealthy people control. You stay in control in the situation and don't give in just because they're pressuring or asking for something. So Festus says, look, if you want to go through this, you come back under my rulership there in Caesarea and we can work through this further. Verse 6 says, and when he remained among them more than 10 days... He then went down to Caesarea. Notice you always go down from Jerusalem, uh, even though geographically it's the opposite way. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. So upon returning back to the headquarters there in Caesarea with authority as a ruler, Festus now brings Paul out for official examination. The judgment seat was basically that throne area where a ruler would sit 
and he would evaluate a person for who they were and what their actions had been to make a decision regarding what they deserved in regards to any judgment. Verse 7 says, And when they had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about, notice, and laid many serious complaints, the Bible says, against Paul, which, however, verse 7, they could not prove. So once again, here's this rehashing of the same pattern. His enemies come again, and in their angst towards him and their resentment towards him, they begin to lay out all these false accusations. Verse 7 says, they laid many serious complaints. The idea is they're expressing all the reasons why they disliked Paul and blaming him for things that they felt like he had done wrong. Yet despite all they complained about and accused him of, the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 7, they could not prove any of those things. There was no legitimacy to any of their complaints. I kind of envision it this way from taking what we've heard in the prior chapters. They come and they say, look, we want you to know this man is a plague and he's causing division all over the empire and among the Jews all around the world and he is dishonoring God and misconducting himself in our temple. And then Festus saying, okay, uh, can you explain how he's done that? Oh, well, okay, could you, um, could you give me just an example or two? Like when did that actually happen? And can you explain exactly what he said and how he did that? Well, well, okay. So in other words, you're making accusations that have no real legitimate basis to them. You just don't like the guy. You're just angry at him. You just have resentment. Or perhaps you're just misunderstanding and thinking he's done things that he's never done. And so you're falsely accusing him as the result of just misunderstanding. They, they couldn't prove anything. And again, I find sometimes, maybe you've seen as well, people actually do this. They, they complain about someone or individuals or they, they begin to blame or make accusations. But when you get right down to it or you ask a question or two, there's not even any proof. Well, well when did they do that? Well, well, tell me exactly what they did. Well... There's no proof to it. They're just angry complaints of somebody who's got an attitude towards a particular individual. Well, Paul was then given occasion again, verse 8, to answer for himself. So when he answered, he said, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against this temple, nor against Caesar, that is the emperor of Rome, have I offended in anything at all. So notice, Paul had confidence that he had done nothing wrong. He had not violated any religious or ceremonial laws, he says, among the Jews. And he says, nor am I an offender of the Roman Empire. I have not violated, he says, anything of the Roman Empire against Caesar. I have not offended in anything at all. Now, look, I don't think Paul was arrogantly indicating that he was a perfect man by any means. What Paul was simply stating here is in this particular matter at hand, I know that I'm guiltless. In this particular situation, I have not done any of the things that they're saying and my conscience is clear. And their anger, Paul understood, their anger is not over some legitimate offensive thing that I've clearly done that's broken a law or that has offended them directly. 
Paul understood the problem is, is they just don't like me. And their attitude towards me, therefore, makes them envision that I'm doing things that I'm not really doing to them. Well, verse 9, Festus, then wanting, it says, to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now, the reason Festus asked this of Paul is it was Roman law to ensure due process and fair trials that the indicted or accused individual could not have their case or their trial moved to another location and thus they themselves granted permission to cooperate with having their case moved elsewhere. So that is why here Festus, though a ruler, wanting, it says, to gain favor with the Jewish people, his new delegates, he requests if Paul would be willing to transfer the judgment proceedings over to Jerusalem. Of course, that would better accommodate the Jews, give them home court advantage, if you would. And it would, from Festus's end, kind of garner a little bit more favor. And again, he had denied this request initially, but maybe he thought this might help to kind of grease the gears among his new delegates. Delegates, But verse 10, Paul answered this and said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. Paul says, I am standing right where I should be as a Roman citizen here before the courts of Rome in Caesarea. Not to mention, he says, I've already proved multiple times, he says, verse 10, that to the Jews, I've done no wrong as you and others very well know. It seems Paul recognized that this whole thing in discernment was just a big game of maneuvering and it was a bunch of individuals who strongly disliked him with crooked agendas. And keep in mind, Paul's already been dealing with all these shenanigans for like two to three years already. He's been dealing with this same recurring nonsense. So that's why Paul says, verse 11, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I don't object to dying, but, he says, if there is nothing in these which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. So Paul understood his civil rights as a Roman citizen, which he has at this point in time. And he recognized the value and respected it of governmental authority. Paul says, I understand my civil rights as a citizen of Rome and I recognize how the governing laws of our land properly work. So Paul says there in our text, he says, if I've committed a crime deserving of death, Paul says, I don't object to dying. Paul says, if I legitimately have violated the law and deserve capital punishment to be put to death for my crime, I don't object to having my life taken away from me. Now, again, I find this interesting. Paul understood the value and the purpose, notice, of capital punishment or what we call the death penalty in a society, that there are certain crimes, certain crimes, then when committed, that those certain crimes, that the just punishment should be to lose your own right to continue living as a person. And the Bible supports this form of justice. Again, capital punishment is used to keep victims safe and others in society safe from the same violation happening to them again or to someone else. And it also gives a judicial, just, and righteous at times punishment for the offender of what they did. Now look, capital punishment or the death sentence 
does not mean a person can't be forgiven by God. It doesn't mean they can't have their sins forgiven and still go to heaven. What it simply does is in a just way among a culture and a society recognizes that if somebody has gone in a grievous way across the line, they have now forfeited their right to continue living on this earth. And for the safety and the welfare of others, the just punishment and the safety of others is more important in that situation. And Paul here proves that he was totally in cooperation with that. But yet Paul also on the other side of that says in verse 11, if indeed it's clear I've done nothing to violate any laws and I'm an innocent individual, then Paul says, look, as an innocent person in this situation, he says, if I'm not proven guilty, then he says the law should be upheld for me as the innocent too. I deserve to be protected by the law. If I'm not guilty, he says, then I deserve the same rights according to law as someone who is guilty. If I'm guilty, I'll take my sentence and my punishment. And he says on the other side of that, if I'm an innocent individual, I deserve my rights to be protected according to law. And he says, nobody can hand me over to them if I have not violated any law. So in light of that, understanding his full entitlement as a citizen, Paul then the end of verse 11 says, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, verse 12, when he had conferred with the council, answered and said, you've appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Now, this was the right of every Roman citizen in the entire empire. If you felt you were getting an unfair trial, you could appeal to the emperor of Rome to have your trial heard there. And Paul understood this was his right legitimately as a citizen and being exasperated by the past two or three years of drama ultimately becomes so compelled to get resolution that Paul just says, you know what? I am exercising my right as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar and Festus now realizing he's in a jam, he has to uphold the law and he says, okay then, then to Caesar you are going to go. Now question, where was the headquarters of Caesar Nero, which is who it was at this time, the emperor, where was his headquarters? Rome. Can I remind you, what was Jesus' promise to Paul? We saw a few chapters ago, he said this, Paul, as you have borne witness of me in Jerusalem, you shall also bear witness of me in Rome. And now Paul's headed to Rome. Interestingly enough, and he's doing it on the payroll of the government. He doesn't have to finance his own trip. He's going to get a government expense paid trip to Rome. And Paul is now on his way to Rome. But again, here's Paul, what's happening, through dealing with a difficulty and through dealing even with difficult people in his life and even mistreatment in his life, he's being directed right into the promises and the plans of God. Oh, this isn't right. Why difficulty? Why difficult people? Look, I, I can't explain why the difficulty or why the difficult people. It's a fallen world. But here's the glorious thing. Through difficulty and even through difficult people, God can still direct you to exactly where he wants you to end up. And Paul now is being directed to ultimately experience the purposes of God in the end to end up in Rome. Well, verse 13 tells us, after some days, then King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea there to greet, it says, Festus. So now a, 
a visit from a royal couple comes to welcome Festus to his new position as governor. We're told their names are Agrippa and Bernice. They were a couple. And this Agrippa here is Herod Agrippa II. There are many Herods in the New Testament. All of them pretty much are dysfunctional, but they're not the same individuals. But the family line of Herods, we see them in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. Uh, The relatives of this Herod have already killed all the male babies in Jesus' day. They were the ones, the Herods, who beheaded John the Baptist, who killed James, imprisoned Peter, and that's just some Bible information that we have. And now this Herod, Agrippa II, he, according to literature, was just as immoral and cruel of a man and just as much of a corrupt leader as the other descendants behind him. He's together with a woman at this time, his partner, her name is Bernice, she's the sister of Drusilla, which, remember, was Felix's wife, and history tells us that Bernice was a very beautiful woman, but also a very immoral woman. We use her beauty for selfish advantage and many times change romantic partners for her own advantageous benefits. In fact, I'll give you an example of that. She's together, Bernice, with Agrippa II here, and Herod Agrippa II and Bernice were actually half-brother and sister. That's called incest. Gross. One historian said this, Agrippa and Bernice were the scandal of Judea. They were half-brother and sister who had not married but were living together. Agrippa, being only 17 when his father died, should have reigned, but the emperor Claudius thought him too young and placed his kingdom under the Roman governor until he came of age. After the death of Claudius, the emperor Nero then gave him a larger domain, and he was well acquainted with Jewish law and customs, but a ruler with great allegiance to Rome. Bernice was a beautiful woman who made a fetish of sinful and incestuous relationships. She had been married to her uncle Herod, king of Chalcis, but when he died, she chose to live with her brother, committing the worst kinds of incest. Later on, to avoid the scandal with Agrippa, who she's with, Bernice left Agrippa and married King Palamon. She stayed married for only a brief time, then went back to Agrippa a second time, which we see her with now, and then Bernice later in history also became the mistress of two successive Roman emperors, Vespasian and Titus, who were also father and son. So, I mean, here's this couple, Bernice and Agrippa, immoral, very confused, living completely outside of healthy design for life, who desperately need God in their life. They desperately need God. And take notice what is happening. Therefore, God coordinates events and circumstances and timetables to have them arrive there in Caesarea before Paul ends up being sent away to Rome. Why? Because as we're going to see, because Agrippa will be utilized by Festus to further interview Paul to examine him to try and get some charges before he's sent to Caesar so he has something to write in his letter. Yet in so doing, Paul's going to get the opportunity to share his personal testimony in Christ with Agrippa and Bernice and they get to hear the truths about God as a very confused couple desperately in need of understanding the ways of God for their own life. Again, I tell you, God has amazing ways, folks, to get a lot of mileage out of our own misfortunes in life and of messy situations and problems. 
So verse 14 tells us that when he had then been there many days, Festus, it says, laid Paul's case before the king. So here's what's going to happen, and we won't take a lot of time to go through it. It's mainly a narrative. Festus, in a sense, says to Agrippa why he's visiting, listen, I got this situation. This prisoner got left behind by Felix. I don't know what to do with this guy. was wondering maybe if you could give me your take on it. So he brings out, it says the situation before him, verse 14, and he says, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not custom of the Romans to deliver a man to destruction before the accused meets his accusers, notice, face to face, and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and I commanded the man to be brought in. So he basically recounts to Bernice and Agrippa exactly what has been taking place and how he did his best to uphold Roman protocol. Notice the main point of doing proper process. He mentions in verse 16, he says, look, in the way I handled this, I held up the custom of the Romans. I did not deliver this man to destruction before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against him. That was Roman law and custom. Would to God we would honor that a little bit more in our own judicial system. Letting the accused meet face to face with his accusers to answer for himself directly and honestly. Now, let me go a step further. Would to God that would also be the way that we would always function in the church. When situations happen. When accusations are made or offenses take place, rather than angrily gossip and complain and backbite about what we don't like or upset us or bothered us about another person to somebody else other than the person, that we would instead go directly to people that we have an issue with and work through our issues face to face, eye to eye going directly to the person, expressing what concern we have regarding what has taken place or we think's taking place, and give a respectful opportunity for open dialogue to actually honestly tell them how we feel or what we're thinking or what we think happened and give them a chance face-to-face to answer for themselves about the situation to try and bring resolution. You know, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus instructed us to do that. He said, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. See, there's a lot of valuable benefit to operating according to the way Jesus said, if an offense happens. First and foremost, it holds the person accountable clearly for their known offense so that hopefully they'll change. Oh, they hurt me. They angered me. Well, then you need to go tell them. They did something. Okay, if they legitimately did, you need to go tell them as their brother or sister to hold them accountable because they need to be held accountable. And hopefully they'll change. Hopefully that will cause them to want to repent and to apologize. It's also valuable in this sense. It enlightens people if they failed to realize what they've done. Listen, I've been married. January's going to be 25 years and raised you know, three daughters into adulthood. I can tell you, there's a lot of times, as a guy, I've caused offense. 
and I'm clueless. And by somebody, you hurt my feelings. I did? How? What did I do? But sometimes I legitimately did, but I needed it brought to my attention because I'm not as... Sometimes people need it brought to their attention. They don't even know they've offended you. They don't even know they've hurt your feelings and you bring it to their attention. Oh my goodness, I apologize. I didn't realize I did that. And sometimes it's valuable because on occasion, as we talked about earlier, sometimes it empowers the person who supposedly is being accused to have the opportunity to be able to help you come to realize this was just a misunderstanding. And you, as the supposed victim, have just misunderstood and they didn't even do anything to sin against you. You just misunderstood and got overly sensitive and offended by it. And so the value of what Jesus says has great purpose. Even the Romans understood that in the way they handled situations. So Festus goes on to recount what happened. He says, when his accusers stood up, They brought no accusation against him of such things, I suppose. It wasn't civil matters, but had some questions about him concerning their own religion, about a certain Jesus who died and who Paul affirmed to be alive. Notice Festus could recognize this wasn't a civil issue. It was a religious matter. The main thing they don't like about this guy is he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth saying that he was God, the Lord of heaven, who came to earth, lived among them, died on a cross for sinners that we might be forgiven of our sin, and that Paul was saying, and this guy's back alive from the dead. And there's an eternal destiny and an afterlife. And according to what you do in response to Jesus, that's going to determine where you end up eternally in hell or in heaven. And Festus understood that's what this is. This is not a civil issue. It's a spiritual issue. And it's the offense of Christ. And Paul preaching that Christ died for sins and that Christ rose again from the dead and that Jesus Christ is the only way for your sins to be forgiven and to have the access into heaven and not end up being sentenced and punished to hell. And what you do in regard to this Jesus, Paul was saying, that's going to determine your eternal destiny. And this was offending them. And and Festus himself, as an onlooker, realized this is what this is. The message of Christ is causing great offense to these people. And it does when someone doesn't want to respond. So he says, because I was uncertain, verse 20, of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning the matters. But when Paul appealed be reserved to the decision of Augustus. The idea there, Augustus, is a reference to the emperor of the gods. He says, I commanded him to be kept until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said, I would also like to hear this man myself. And he says, tomorrow you shall hear him. So Agrippa's now curious. I I think I'd like to hear this guy's case myself. So verse 23, the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, and entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus' command, Paul was brought in. Now, take notice what's happening here. They gather there in the auditorium in Caesarea, and the ruins of this are still there to this day in Caesarea, this huge stone amphitheater auditorium, seats about 2,500 people. They all are proceeding in now. It says that Agrippa, King Agrippa comes in with his partner Bernice with great pomp. 
And all the prominent people of the city come in here. That is all this pageantry and, you know, royal display of these supposedly important people. They're all decked out and admired as they're all coming in. People, ooh, wow, did you see who's here? Did you see, look, look, wow, look at his robe. You know, it's like one of these Hollywood things. Wow, look at Bernice's outfit. And there's all this, you know, excitement of these supposedly important people. And then verse 23 says, here comes Paul. Here comes this humble prisoner, Paul. He comes walking into the same situation. Now look, from a human perspective, everybody's impressed with all the supposedly important people. From heaven's perspective, God's impressed with Paul. With the humble servant who is being obedient to him and doing what's right. Boy, the perspective of heaven, the perspective of earth is vastly different. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, the public demonstration, but the Lord looks upon the heart. That's what matters most to him. Luke 16, Jesus said, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God's perspective is so much different. Paul, now here he stands again, Verse 24 says, And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both of Jerusalem, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, notice, no civil crimes, that he himself had appealed now to Augustus, I decided to send him. Here's his problem, verse 26 I have nothing certain to write, my Lord, concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, because Agrippa had great awareness of the customs of Judaism, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write, some charges that I can specify. For it seemed to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify charges against him. So, at this point, Festus addresses Agrippa in the audience and he acknowledges openly, look, I got a dilemma here. I got to send this guy to the emperor. And he says, there are no civil violations of any law that he's committed. So he says, I'm hoping somehow that I can get some you know, evidence of something criminal. And he says, because I don't think it's probably a good idea to send him to Caesar and have no charges. Because here he's going to show up before the emperor and go, why is this guy here? Why is he tying up things in the, in, in the capital of the Roman Empire? And so he says, I've got a real dilemma on my hands. So he says, therefore, I have nothing certain to write about him, he says to my Lord, verse 26. And he says, so I'm hoping, King Agrippa, before you, that after the examination is taking place, you can give me something to be able to write about him, some credible charge. Now, the next chapter, chapter 26, will be Paul standing before Agrippa and Agrippa examining him and Paul again gives his defense and shares very beautifully his testimony. But let me say this. What again is happening here? What is happening here is this. Paul's dealing with more difficulty, but it's being used to accomplish the will of the Lord. Because if you go all the way back to Paul's original conversion and calling to ministry, Jesus said this about Paul's life. He said, I will use this man as a chosen vessel of mine, and he shall be my witness, he said, before Gentiles, before kings, and before the house of Israel. Where does Paul keep finding himself on a platform in front of? Kings. 
powerful political leaders who need Jesus just as much as everybody else through difficulty. Look, again, let me encourage you this morning. Perhaps you've been forced to deal with a difficulty. Let me just say in the midst of that to encourage you, be open. Perhaps that difficulty is something God can still overrule in to direct you into something for his higher purpose. Be open to that. Shall we stand together?